Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome to Skylight Bookstores podcast. We are so excited you guys are here today. I'm your host, Christine Blackburn, and I will be here today in conversation with Laura Creste and also Emma Hine. And we're celebrating Emma Hine's new book, Stay Safe. So I'm basically going to let the girls speak in conversation. There'll be some questions asked, I'm sure, from Laura, and we'll get a lot more information about the new book. It's a brand new debut collection of poetry that is just doing fantastic, and we're so happy to have her book here at Skylight Books. So so if you guys have a chance, you make sure you head over to skylightbooks.com and order Emma Hines' new book, Stay Safe. And there's always stuff on our website telling you what's coming up, our virtual events, and more information about our podcasts. You can also follow Skylight Bookstore at Skylight Books on Twitter. That's where we like to hang out. So come on over to Twitter and follow Skylight Books. All right, you guys, we're so happy to have Emma Hine here. She is originally from Austin, Texas, and she received a BA from Washington University in St. Louis and an MFA from New York University. She currently serves as the communication manager at the community of literary magazines and presses and the education content specialist at the Academy of American Poets. Heinz poems have previously appeared or are forthcoming in 32 poems, Arts and Letters, Copper Nickel, Gulf Coast, The Mississippi Review, Ninth Letter, The Offing, The Paris Review, Painted Bride Quarterly, Radar Poetry, and The Southern Review. And like I said, she'll be in conversation today with Laura Creste, who won a 2019 Poetry Society of America's Chapbook Fellowship for her book, of poetry called You Should Feel Bad. So please folks, enjoy this conversation with Laura Creste and Emma Hine. Thank you so much. Um, it is a real honor to be here and I am a huge fan of Skylight Books and also of Laura's work. So this is a real honor. Um, I was just gonna start by reading a couple of poems from Stay Safe. And this first poem is called A Circling. Impossible to think of Frank and not think shark. His bathrobe flopped open once and there it was, bite of thigh missing, skin like a spider tried to stop the hole with web. I never looked at him directly again. My mother fixed him lunch while I stared anywhere but the carved space that was the scar that was Frank. He was my great uncle. 
In the family story, his father tells him not to take a swim. The shark net is down. Everyone knows not to swim without the net. He dives from the cliff, from the air of fin. His flesh unlaces. There are teeth embedded in his bone. By the time he died, I'd memorized his shape in the recliner, the pattern of beer bottles across his floor, mapping his aftermath like a frontier. The shark hovers inches above its own shadow. Frank pulls off his clothes in the sun. Um, see, the second poem I'm going to read is called Incantation for If and When I Lose Him. He makes a good decommissioned warship. I make a good ocean. Good tugboat leading him far enough from the shore. Good explosive fixed in rows below the waterline of his hull. This series of hollow booms is our last slow dance. When I have flooded all his rooms, the empty bunks, the engine stripped of its wires, let his portholes fill and fall like plunder. Let him stay where I sink him. Let the fish come. Let the coral turn this wreck and tender into something new. And I'll just read one final poem. It's called Longview. The old motel is still there in the dunes and the oil rig still flickers like a deserted city on the horizon. When we check in, the receptionist says that long ago, a woman swam all the way to the rig from shore. Someone else told us this story when we were children. The empty city doesn't give up its first inhabitant easily. So like grief, the swimmer has to settle in. She scales the derrick, tears her clothes into strips and ties them to the cables, presses her face against the warm engine's side. It's getting late, but we leave our bags in the room and follow the boardwalk to the beach where the waves touch shore in little habitual apologies and the sand holds our footprints like it's never been walked on before. We play our old game, count the lights, the moon, the safety beams on the oil rig, swath of galaxy, phosphorescing shrimp. The beach is so bright, it could be day on a different planet, a dimmer one farther from the sun, making us very far away, looking around at an array of distant lights and signaling straight for the small blue earth. Do not miss us, we say, and we're sorry. Sorry we left at night with no note or explanation. You see, we always intended to come back. Oh, Emma, you read some of my favorite poems. So I loved hearing those. Uh, I'm a little torn right now because I want to ask you about space because of the last poem you just read, but I also want to ask you about family because of the Frank poem. So I think let's, let's start with family and then I move on to space later. That sounds great. Yeah, so, so many of these poems circle around like stories that get passed down through families. I was just wondering, how do you negotiate which stories are okay to tell or sift through which version is the truest? Because you make references to like different people's perspectives, um, like in Flight Path, you know, they argued and added until each girl had a list of her own. Um, or you'll talk about my version of the stories or when Frank appears in another poem, it's his, uh, my cousin once removed told stories about her father and in every story he was a different kind of man. How do you balance all of these different uh, perspectives and like, yeah, honoring other people's perspectives, but still having the authority of the storyteller and like you are telling us the, the one true version. 
I love that question. And it's definitely something that I've wrestled with during all of my revisions of this collection. Um, I used to really stay away from family stories because I didn't want to feel like I was telling someone else's story or telling someone else's secrets. Um, and I remember one time something happened to a family member and another family member told me explicitly, this is not your story to tell. And, and I really, I held on to that for a while. But I think what I'm starting to realize is that when you care about people and when you hold their stories, they become your stories too. So, so for me, I think wrestling with the idea of perspective and really trying to negotiate the fact that, that the same event can be told by multiple different people in multiple different ways and treating that with as much you know, kindness and nuance and compassion as possible was, was the way I tried to address family history in, in this collection. But I was very relieved when I, I gave this book to my extended family and they, they met it with, with a lot of grace and, um, and celebration because I was nervous about having told some family stories that are true and some family stories in this collection that are pure fiction that I just said were family stories. <laughs> So I think, yeah, negotiating, negotiating truth and fiction and acknowledging them in interesting ways was just the way I personally chose to address it. And do you ever show your poems to maybe your, your immediate family? Like you write so much about your sisters. Do you show them drafts in progress or do you wait until the end? It depends on the poem. Um, there's a poem in, in Stay Safe called This Time that's about a horse, something terrible happens to a horse. And that is pretty close to the truth. And I did run that poem by, by the sister that it happened to just to make sure that, that I was doing the event justice and not treading on any toes. But sometimes I just wait and they read it when it's published. Yeah. That one is such a startling poem. Um, I'm trying to think, I feel like there's also um, some distance you create with your your real life and the the characters in your book because you do use those radio uh names like the the hotel sisters i think helps create some of that distance yeah that's a really great point and and i definitely did that on purpose so that i felt like i could it's kind of that i am not the speaker of my poem my sisters are not the sisters of my poems even though there's a huge amount of consistency there of course between reality and in the world of the poems. It was very helpful to me to have these stand-in sisters for my sisters that are that are kind of literal like radio echoes of of my actual sisters. I felt like I could I could make make dramatic moments more dramatic and not feel like I was kind of sensationalizing our lives. But um that makes a lot of sense to me. I, when I was in grad school, I did something similar with writing about my family where I changed their names in, in a project I've since uh, given up on. But um, yeah, so I can really relate to that impulse of obscuring the truth just a little bit so you can sneak in more, more family detail and more personal stuff. Yeah. I also noticed um, that you, when you're writing about other people's lives, you'll sort of do this thing where you'll you'll pull back a little bit at a, a very vulnerable moment and leave some of the action implied, even though it's still very, um, the descriptions are incredibly vivid and, um, you know, you don't, sh you don't shy away from telling us 
what's happening in the larger scene, but in the, the moment of like, like death, for example, and mentioning how a great grandfather was a pilot who died in a plane crash, the moment of his death is given some privacy because that's conveyed with just, um, I'm gonna find it. Maybe we can cut out some of these pauses. Uh, our great grandfather was a test pilot. We don't know much. And then it, it starts speculating about how the plane might have failed, but the we don't know much is how his death is communicated. So I was just wondering if that is that kind of spareness is something that you revise towards, or if that is naturally how you you come at these stories that you don't have firsthand knowledge of. Um, it really depends. I definitely I think I revise toward rhythm in a lot of cases. Um, I. For instance, that poem that you just read from, it started as a very in-depth lyric essay where I was really trying to go into the narrative of my great-grandfather's death. And I had newspaper clippings and I was trying to write around it and it felt a little bit laden and it felt a little bit boring. And I was having trouble figuring out how to make it more immediate. And I did two things. I added the, there's a separate narrative in there. There's a fable of two girls on the beach. And I added that. And I also tried to revise the poem itself toward really punchy sentences to keep myself as a reader invested in the way it was moving. So I think often if I feel myself getting too long-winded in a scene, I, I try to sort of punch it up into shorter sentences and, and move the poem more quickly through drama. But I think I might also be looking away from things that upset me too. I've, I've learned that that is a tendency of my own in poems that I'm interested in. I look forward to exploring in the future, but I definitely think I'll be like, oh, this is about to get bloody, let's go fast. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, but yeah, I love that poem, Flight Path. And it's so interesting to know that it used to be a lyric essay because there are moments that are are quite prosy, especially uh, section six, which extends the farthest across the page. Yes. Um, yeah, and it's, I feel like this poem is a good example of two different things that you do where you will be very like technical, like you're describing flight in this incredible detail that seems to me like you've done a lot of research on how planes work. And, but then you also have running alongside that, this um, sort of mythic or like fable happening about girls finding a man washed up on the shore with um, his, like his skin is clear and you can see his insides and then he, he gets up and he, he walks away. Um, how do you, how did you figure out that like those, that these two different impulses can exist within just the same book and even within the same poem? Because it's, to me, it seems like you're like finding the world explicable in a way, like you can do the research and understand it, but then you hit a limit where it just becomes too mysterious and that's where the, the magic has to step in. Hmm. Oh, I love that description. Um, I think it, I, I get excited about different, different kind of kinds of writing or different ways of thinking at different times. And in that poem in particular and throughout the book, it really helped me to alternate and so the section that you're talking about that goes really technically into the mechanics of flight, I spent a long time sitting with newspaper clippings and I also found this really cool old book that was like a visual dictionary of old um, aircraft from World War I. And so I was researching really meticulously this, 
the tiny micro ways in which these technologies worked. But then I would get, I would kind of peter out and I would get tired or I would feel like I'd emotionally exhausted like what I could get out of that part of the poem and I would switch and I would be able to take the emotions that I've been trying to figure out and develop in the more technical parts and really expand them in these fables that I was using to try to illustrate those same emotions in different ways. And um, I did that in other poems too. There are some very kind of mythic, fabulous poems in here. And then there are others that required a lot of research. One of the poems that I, that I read just a minute ago actually incantation for if and when I lose him. That one I did a huge amount of research on what happens when a boat is sunk to make a coral reef. And so I feel like, um, I guess it's just the same as some writers switch genres and use that genre switching as energizing. I found it really energizing to, to do research and then, and then go full fairy tale. <laughs> and I was able to kind of bounce back and forth. Do you remember which impulse came first for that poem, uh, Incantation for If and When I Lose Him? If it was the, like the image that you had first and then you did the research to support it, or if you were reading about this, how the, um, the reef is made and then you were suddenly like, this is kind of like love. Like, I'm pretty sure it was the reef. I think I got really into just some of those, like that underwater photography that you see sometimes of, you know, old, like tanks and stuff that have sunk and have the coral built up around them. And then I started thinking, oh, a breakup. <laughs> you know? Naturally. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, were you read a lot of like mythology too as a child or a lot of fairy tales? It seems like that is running so strongly through your work. Is that just like ingrained in you from a young age? Yeah, we had that classic book of myths that a lot of people have. And actually, I lost my childhood copy and I ended up with Sharon Olds's copy when um, while she was teaching at NYU, she was giving away copies or books from her personal library that she didn't have space for anymore. And I ended up with hers, which just felt beautifully poetic. But I um, we read a lot of myths. And then I got, as a kid, I got really into like mythical retellings of Robin Hood and Beauty and the Beast and stuff like that. Um, but my family just really lives in storytelling. I think the way our, our dinner table conversations growing up were like, mom, tell us that story about the time my uncle did that weird thing. <laughs> and I think that really informed my understanding of the way, the way we sit in our own family narratives, you know. That makes sense. I mean, you have a lot of good family stories, so I can see why you'd want to hear them. Um. And then you can really see Bridget Begin Kelly's influence on some of these poems, especially the one Selkie, which you explicitly say is, is after her. Um, can you talk a little bit about the creation of that poem? Yes, that was one of those poems that I fully wrote as a different poem first. I, it was a poem about my mom going on a hike on the beach and getting a little bit lost and there wasn't a Selkie in it. And it was, it just didn't quite work. And I worked on it for a really long time and I'd never read Bridget Begin Kelly. And then I started reading her work and it was just transformative. You know, you have those experiences sometimes when you pick up a poet that you've never encountered before and it just like, you start seeing in color all of a sudden, <laughs> you know? And her work was like that for me. And I know she's like that for a lot of poets, a lot of poets I really admire. And I came across 
her poem, The Black Swan. And I couldn't get the structure and the syntax of that poem out of my head. And I ended up kind of doing an imitation exercise basically where I took the ideas and the emotions in that original poem about my mother on the beach and I combined them with the Selkie myth and I put them in, in a format that echoed Kelly's poem and it finally started to work. And that was, that was actually a really transformative moment just in my editing process. I feel like it was only after that that poems like Flight Path finally started to take shape in the way they appear now. I feel like I needed, I needed her poems. I needed her relationship to family and myth to be able to approach my own in a way that felt right, I guess, at that point. I remember I was introduced to her poems by you at some point in grad school and I was like, oh, this makes sense. This makes sense. This is <laughs> one of Emma's favorite poems. And yeah, she's phenomenal. Uh, should we talk about space? I would love to talk about space. <laughs> there are a few poems in this book that um, take place in space or like in Red Planet is a persona poem, like, you know, from Mars's perspective, which I love. And then there's just the uh, incredible Echo Hotel, which I just think of as like a poem that really anchors the whole collection. And then just interesting side note, you have another project going that that takes up this same world. So can you talk about um, what is it about space that you find so generative? Like I, I know you have an abiding love for, for sci-fi. So can you talk about that a little. I love science fiction to be like, like you said, I love science fiction. And I think for a long time, I just, I grew up on Star Trek. I grew up really loving to sort of, I wanted to be an astronaut before I realized that, do I have the math brain? No. Do I get terrible motion sickness? Yes. Um, but I love just thinking about what's out there and thinking about you know, space and possibility. And I think for me, space and the ocean play similar roles, especially in my poetry and in the way I think about this sort of thing, this, this flat depth, you know, that can hold really wonderful things and really terrifying depth. And um, I think they play, they kind of play two ends of the same spectrum, both in Stay Safe and in my mind. Um, but I didn't, I didn't think that space was something you could really write about. I, in my mind, that was my kind of wonderful guilty pleasure and it was a subgenre and it wasn't something that you could put in poetry. And then I read Tracy K. Smith's Life on Mars. And then I read Adrian Matika's Map to the Stars and a few other books that address space. Um, Bianca Stone's Someone Else's Wedding Vows has a really gorgeous poem about Star Trek Voyager in it. These poems that address space and, and I started to feel like I was allowed to think in this sort of way. And it was incredibly energizing, I think, to be able to take this whole genre that just to me really sums up like possibility and creativity and inventiveness and also like darkness and fear and and put it into poetry in a way I didn't I didn't think it it belonged before and that that kind of juxtaposition just gave me a lot of energy. Well and yeah I mean you say in another poem too surely space is just another underwater Yes, I, I love because they're just so they're equally unknown and mysterious. Right, they're both really scary. 
Yeah. yeah. So then how did the, the novel happen? So you mentioned the long poem in Stay Safe. It's called Echo Hotel. And it's a series of prose poems that are all set in the same science fiction universe. They're all set on this kind of um, fleet of generations ships that have left Earth some some long ago time before. And I that was the last poem that I wrote for this collection before it was accepted. And while I was sending Stay Safe out to publishers and then working on it um, with my wonderful editor at Sarah Band, I needed something to do and I just didn't feel like I was done with that world. So I started just playing around in it, working on kind of fictional stories set in that same world. And I have some very um, lovely friends who, who serve as readers um, and they're sort of a group of fiction writers and poets who are very generous and of whom Laura is actually one, <laughs> um, who are very kind and helped me workshop and think about these ideas. And I guess it just, I couldn't let go of the world and now it's a novel. Um, and I'm working with an agent on it right now, which is very exciting. Yeah, it's a great novel. I'm so happy that you've continued that project. The world feels so lived in in this poem, like just in the small details, like uh, a, the librarian who's reading a book, like the audiobook. it says, has the soft accent of someone only a generation or two removed from earth. It's just, just those little details that make it feel so alive to me. Thank you. Um, I have a theory about why you love writing about space. Yes. Which maybe it's not that much of a stretch because you, you pretty much allude to it uh, in one of the, the poems here, but um, just talking about like writing about space or people who are cast off in space and removed from earth is a like a good device to have all of your characters experiencing this sort of diffuse like grief and anxiety. And it's, it's just like shared collective uh, trauma. Like the, there's the, a line in the, that prose poem we've been talking about, Echo Hotel, with, um, you know, all were careful not to cast it as a home abandoned. So you took a while to define this feeling you were born with as grief. When you finally did, you told your parents there was a hole in your chest the size of a planet. Um, that makes so much sense. I had never thought about it in that context before, but I think you're absolutely right. And I actually have, I did have a friend who read, who read this poem tell me once that, that it was the most nature-y poem about space they'd ever read. And I think, I do think that I'm also, I tend toward nature in all of my poems and I find it it almost a useful exercise to have to leave like leave dirt and plants behind so dramatically as to go to space yeah and it feels like an elegy for the earth like it's just that this really intense longing that many of the characters share so yeah no i think you're totally right can we talk about anxiety absolutely <laughs> because that's another thing that partly comes up in in the space poems, but also in, in other poems, your speakers are um, often very anxious or like grieving or just feeling a lot of um, intense dread. And I was wondering, basically, do you, 
when thinking about like anxiety and terrible things that can happen, like one of your your speakers says that like fears come alive in the speaking of them. So you should avoid bringing up your deepest fears because it might like invite them to happen. Um, but then you you sort of do the opposite throughout this this whole book. Like um, there's a, a moment where you say, I can only imagine this kind of grief and I do. And I love the, the frankness of that, just I do. Um, so yeah, how do you feel about like the push and pull of like avoiding anxiety, but like writing into your deepest fears and yeah, what does that look like as, as you're writing it? So I'm very anxious and working on these poems really helped me name and explore some of these anxieties. I'm, you know, I try to stay away from the idea of writing as therapy, but I think that the act of communicating, even if it's just to yourself, the way that you feel and navigate those feelings is incredibly helpful in some ways. Um, I, like I say in that poem um, about, you know, kind of thinking ahead toward grief and wondering what what grief will will be the one that fells you, you know. Um, I I've actually had a very lucky life, but I have a lot of what they call anticipatory grief. I spend a lot of time being anxious in advance about that, um, and so I'm trying to play with that with the title "Stay Safe" as well, but. I don't know. I think that it was a, it was a really long process for me learning how to engage with my own anxiety in a way that didn't feel navel gazy. I guess in a way that to me to me felt interesting and productive, but not not too intensely and individually personal. Um, and actually, an early draft of this book was almost entirely poems about a modern day Cassandra figure um, who, you know, Cassandra as the, as the mythic figure who was cursed to know the future but never be believed. And I think I used that as a way to kind of negotiate talking about anxiety in a way that didn't feel too personal. And it let me think about and explore some of these ideas without feeling like I was betraying my own confidence or talking about myself too much. And I had a full draft of that book, but it just didn't feel right. And I ended up revising most of those poems or harvesting from them and using them in this collection. So little bits of them are here. Um, so it's sort of, I think it, or at least I hope that a lot of the poems still have that, that sense of a that sense of a speaker kind of like a doomed prophet talking about the future and and not really able to stop what she knows is going to happen. But I, I hope at least that that's just moved back into an anxious speaker and isn't a, a you know, cursed princess anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I don't think it's too navel-gazy. I think that applies to, to most of us, or I found this like extremely relatable, um, especially in, in lines like, you know, I'm still in the part of my life before the loss I won't get over and when will it be and who, like that's, you know, coming for everybody who lives long yeah. enough. So I, I found it comforting to, to have poems that directly engage with that idea. Thank you. 
Um, and I want to take a moment just to plug your book as well. Um, your poems are just also really, you know, gorgeous, contemporary, kind of thought-provoking looks at, at you know, anxiety and modernity and, and what it's like to live in the world and live in a relationship and, and be a writer and a reader in this time. And so I feel like your poems actually make me feel the same way. I love sitting with them and I feel like I always learn something more about myself as a reader when I do. Oh, thank you. I think we're good readers for each other. Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah. But uh, back to your book. <laughs> um, uh, could you talk about the title? Like how weird did it feel? Like you, you sent it out with the title, you know, a couple of years ago at 2019, 2018. And now it was published in January of uh, 2021. And you've been hearing stay safe constantly, like signing off with email signatures and people just like saying it to each other all the time. How did that feel? It's so weird. It is so weird to see my book title on Walgreens marquees and interstate <laughs> signs. And, you know, I like, you go into any store and there's a big sign that says stay safe. Um, I find it very strange. I chose it because it felt familiar, but at the time, you know, in like late 2018, when this was the title I landed on, it didn't feel overused. It was really something that I remember telling it to a friend and he said, that sounds like something a Southern, like a Southern parent would say, but, but he wasn't familiar with it or overly familiar with it outside of that context. And now it's just become like the catchphrase of our lives. Um, you know, it's very strange. And I think, I don't know, it feels as back to anxiety as an anxious person, <laughs> I, I've always felt right. Like, like we were living in this world, and I know, I know, I'm not alone in this. Where, where you tell people to stay safe because there's something big and scary coming, and then just in this particular case, the big scary thing came, and it it was this fully tragic and life changing year that has just just you know caused so much loss and so much heartbreak, and um, I think I think in a way I. I don't feel guilty per se, but I'm, I, I feel like I've got this title that now is, is always going to be related in my mind to all of this loss that, that the book itself doesn't actually speak to. And I, I wish I could have some sort of, you know, second dedication or something that, that spoke to the fact that, that I have a, a title that accidentally gestures just to international heartbreak, <laughs> but um, but it was done and set before I knew that was gonna happen, before any of us knew that was gonna happen. Well, I prefer to think of it as you being Cassandra-like. Ah, uh, yes, <laughs> actually that is funny. <laughs> and it is like, yeah, just heartbreaking because it's this, this thing you say as a, a gesture of like, you know, I care about you, I hope you're all right, but it's this like declarative imperative statement that doesn't accomplish anything like like have a safe flight because if you know you have any control over that so um I just find it yeah an, an effective and kind of heartbreaking title thank you and yeah things have changed a lot for you in the last year with the pandemic um but you've moved a few times and are you still are you in your your childhood home right now with all those boxes behind you 
I am. This is my last weekend ever in my childhood home. My parents moved into this house when my mom was 29. And um, so they're leaving. I've been here to help them pack up. And I've been thinking a lot about there are a lot of houses and there's a lot of moving in in Stay Safe. And it's strange to be living that out on the other side and, and thinking about the locations in which stories were told not being ours anymore. It's very strange. Yeah, and you've also, you've been living out of a van, which I think is very romantic and also complicated. Yes, I have. I've been, um, my fiance and I moved into a camper van right before the pandemic started. So it's been a strange year. <laughs> yeah, so. Um, and yeah, so how just like since sense of place is so important in your poems and you know your 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 childhood home playing a big role in the book and moving around, how do you think your your poems like that you're either writing now or will soon will change in response to having moved? Like, you know, you were in New York for a number of years and now you've left New York and you're on the road and are you writing New York poems? Are you writing Texas poems? I think I'm actually in that category of um, writers who are having trouble writing poems this year. And I, I know some writers, including you, I'm loving your new work. And um, I am excited to see what happens down the road. I think I'm hoping that I end up writing new poems. I found that I always need a little time to percolate. A lot of these Texas poems I wrote in New York, so maybe maybe my New York poems will happen down the road. But I, I do feel like I'm starting to kind of fill up the bank a little bit again. And I think that moving around is really helping. I'm excited to see, excited, trepidatious, <laughs> to see what kind of where all of this, all of the moving and all of the anxiety and kind of displacement of this past year of how those work out into future poems of my own and also in poets that I admire. I think, I feel like the poetry collections coming out four to five years from now are going to be awesome as we're all trying to you know, grapple with the, the strangeness of the past year. I'm really excited to read all of them. Yeah, well, I'm really excited to see all of your new poems. Send me them when you have them. Uh, same to you, please. <laughs> And thanks for indulging all of my questions. This was really great to, to hear the deep Laura. dive and what your perspective was about having published these. Well, thank you for your questions and thank you again to Skylight Books. This was just a real honor. Yeah, thanks for having us. You guys are so good. I'm telling you, I've really enjoyed that conversation. Thank you so much, Emma Hine, and thank you, Laura Creste. This was just great. And uh, we want to thank you, the audience, you guys. We appreciate you tuning in to Skylight Podcasts. And remember that you can purchase Emma's book, Stay Safe, at skylightbooks.com. And we appreciate you shopping at Skylight Bookstore, your favorite neighborhood bookstore, even if you don't live here. Okay, you guys, one more time on behalf of the very talented Emma Hine and Laura Creste. Thank you both so much. My name is Christine Blackburn. Thanks for listening to Skylight Books Podcast. Read on. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books Podcast series. 
Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.